0: So here's a question for you. If I'm going to bring up the subjects finance, energy, environment, population, real politic and psychology, what might you think of those things all together? What picture might they form? Well, who better to answer a question like that than somebody who has interests as diverse as these things, a BSC in biology, neuroscience and psychology being a part of that, Postgraduate diploma in air and water pollution control, biogas projects and grid connections for renewable energy, research into the electricity policy, peak oil and finance, an editor, a former editor of the oil drum in Canada, and a professional, or someone who has passed the professional examination in law. That's quite a list, and that list belongs to, and my guest today, is Nicole Foss, who is co-editor of a website called The Automatic Earth. Nicole, that's quite a list. How did you ever get your fingers into so many pies?
1: I've always been just interested in getting my fingers into a lot of pies. I also investigated and wrote a book on nuclear safety in Eastern Europe and things. So there are many, many things that, that uh, I've, I've done over the last few years, but I'm just interested in everything, so I work in one thing for a while and something else and something else. And now what I do is pull it all together into the biggest possible big picture.
0: Uh, uh, Do you find that you're able to manage all these different threads that they all add to some sort of a coherent whole? Very much so. (laughs) And what picture are they painting of the world today? What keeps you up at night?
1: Well, we've, we've lived through a long period of expansion and so I'm looking at what happens and what has happened in history when expansions come to an end. So the entire history of, of uh, civilization has been a series of expansions and contractions. It's kind of like breathing. We inhale and exhale empires rise and fall. And so I'm looking at where we are in that scheme of things and saying, okay, well, what happens next? And is there anything different about our current expansion compared to other ones? What lessons can we learn? What things are the same? What things are different, but it's really a question of, I think we're moving into a period of uh, sharp contraction, and what does that look like, and what do we do about it?
0: So are you contradicting conventional economic theory, which says that growth is limitless?
1: I am comprehensively rejecting it, in fact.
0: What, what sort of reaction do you get from mainstream mm. economists?
1: Oh, well, they mostly ignore me, and I mostly do the exact same thing. Uh, so I'm trying to rewrite macroeconomics from the ground up. And there, there are some economists who are doing that. Steve King, for instance, who's Australian, a professor of economics at the University of Western Sydney, is absolutely brilliant. And he's very much engaged in the same sort of thing from from a different perspective, from a very mathematical perspective. But uh, there aren't that many people who are trying to look at at modeling uh, these cycles of expansion and contraction and truly understanding them. I would argue neoclassical economics bears no resemblance to reality whatsoever. And so it's really quite useless in understanding our current situation.
0: So what are the main objections of, if I were a classical economics uh, economist, what what are the main objections that you're hearing from Hmm. them?
1: Well, neoclassical economics would include assumptions like perfect information and perfect competition and rational utility maximization and efficient markets and equilibrium and... I would say not one of those actually bears any resemblance to reality at all. That's simply not how, how the world works. They would also try and describe an economy without including um, credit, debt, money, banking. And I would say, how can you possibly describe an economy without, without looking at those factors? They would also try and assume away the effects of people, So the idea is if you assume away the people because they're messy and irrational, then what you have left looks something like the laws of physics – And I would say that, no, you actually have nothing left because economies are made of people. And so you have to understand collective psychology and how people interact with each other and their resource base in order to actually understand how economics work. I'd say there's no negative feedback. There's positive feedback. So there's no equilibrium under that situation. There's there's an inherent dynamic instability. And there's obviously no perfect information and perfect competition. I would say there's absolutely no such thing as efficient markets. Markets are not rational. They're based on large swings of human herding behavior where people chase momentum in one direction than the other. They jump on bandwagons without even having any understanding of the fundamentals. How could a system like that possibly be the ultimate arbiter of uh, resource allocation?
0: So if traditional economics is so fundamentally flawed, why are they so attached to it?
1: Oh, some people have made an awful lot of money at at this. So periods of laissez-faire always sow the seeds of their own destruction, but some people get very rich in the process. So you design a Ponzi scheme and well, not in the sense of deliberate fraud. So I I should probably rephrase that. But let's say fair does amount to a, a giant Ponzi scheme. And so you move into a phase like that. And some people get very, very wealthy doing that. And so it perpetuates itself until it reaches a natural limit and then it moves in the opposite direction.
0: Uh, so, you, Are you talking about a confrontation between a managed economy and a, a really heavy free market model?
1: I don't think we really have a free market. I think certainly at the moment we have comprehensive regulatory capture by big capital and I don't think we have any kind of free competition markets in periods of laissez faire tend towards monopolies and that's not market failure that's the natural end game of of this kind of system so initially you have a lot of economic activity that's bubbling up and new things are emerging but then you get consolidation and things move much more into very, very large monopoly positions where there isn't necessarily competition. There might be cozy duopolies or triopolies or cartels, but there isn't really anything that I would regard as being free. And the barriers to entry for many of these things are simply too high for new players to actually come in. And in fact, they're deliberately prevented from entering the market. and
0: does that mean that you, when, when you read in the press, in, in particular types of press, that when they talk about free markets and so on, that they're not really talking about free markets, they're talking about markets that are free to certain sectors, to certain, to monopolies and duopolies and so on. Is that what you're saying?
1: Basically, I think we're talking about Ponzi dynamics. That's what it really amounts to. That when you have an expansion, And it ends up being based on credit. So you end up with an enormous expansion of credit, uh, those promises to repay, gain value. To the point where we reach a limit, people realize the promises can't be repaid. They lose value, and you have this, this enormous contraction. So if you get in early and out early, like in any Ponzi scheme, you do very well. And then the people who buy in at the end, who are the last to jump on the bandwagon, which usually means the public, end up being the empty bag holders at the end of the day. So the insiders will sell their shares to the public at the point where those shares are going to be worth very, very little in the, in the future. And then you have a period of contraction.
0: Is this the challenge between individual gain and common gain?
1: Well, that's certainly part of it. So what's in an individual's interest may actually enormously damage the collective. Markets don't deliver public goods. They don't deliver collective goods. They're very short-term mechanisms for putting profit in certain people's pockets, and they don't anticipate problems coming up. It's very much about exploiting the current situation for personal gain. And and the the sum total, the aggregate of millions and millions of short-term self-interested decisions Is what looks like top down control. I would argue it's actually not top-down control. I do think we have elements of control of parts of the system, but nobody's in control of all of it. Nobody designed it and nobody's pulling the strings and and in control of it now. I think if they they had been, they would have built a monster that they'll live to regret because uh, often the people who are quite wealthy will also lose an enormous amount in a period of contraction.
0: We're also talking about challenging government control versus private control here. So who who actually manages the economy is it these big corporate entities or are it govern- are it governments
1: I think you have corporate fascism, essentially, which means both. It's, it's a fused assemblage of the two. So I don't think you have public control. I think there's a huge influence of regulatory capture in terms of public policy. So I think comprehensive regulatory capture. Big capital writes the rules by which business and, and commerce are, are regulated. So for instance, there's a, a revolving door between Goldman Sachs and the US Treasury. So people come into the Treasury Department from the private banking industry. They write banking regulations and they go back into Goldman Sachs and exploit the uh, loopholes they just wrote into the law. And if you look at the central bankers of the world, the vast majority of them are Goldman Sachs alumni. So these are people who are controlling what's supposed to be the public aspect of the system, but they're really very much serving the private interests. So I think there's there's been a fusion of the two.
0: If you read sections of the media, you would see that they would think this means, or they might interpret you as saying, we want more government control, more regulation, more bureaucracy, Mm -hmm. more rules, more regulation. Is that what you're arguing?
1: No, (laughs) not at all. So I, I actually think that top down things are not going to work. So when you move into a period of contraction, the trust horizon contracts, governance structures will have to get smaller, effective ones anyway, because as the trust horizon contracts, Trust confers political legitimacy. If trust is contracting, higher levels of governance lose political legitimacy. They lose effectiveness. So I'm not looking for any solutions whatsoever from public policy. I think, in fact, that whole level of governance is uh, sclerotic and hostage-divested interests and uh, fundamentally unreformable. So I'm not looking to put new policies in place or or tinker with the, with a the regulatory framework from the top down. I'm looking at what happens when you rebuild the system of governance from the bottom up because effective organizational scale will be much smaller in a period of contraction. If we want to be effective, we need to work at a scale that can be effective. So I think we're going to have to rebuild trust from, from the bottom up. So for quite a while, uh, the highest level of, of government that might actually function in any kind of quasi-normal way might be municipal. Now, I'm not suggesting national government goes away, but I'm suggesting that as it loses political legitimacy because trust is withdrawn, it would have to substitute surveillance and coercion for the previous internalization of rules felt to be in everybody's interest. When people no longer feel the rules are in everybody's interest and they, they start to disregard them, governments will try and make them follow those rules. But that takes an enormous amount of effort. So I think government will be, will be tied up in trying to make people do things. So I think there'll be an impulse to centralization, but I think it won't be centralization that's in any way helpful or useful. I think that's going to actually make the situation worse. I would rather see us rebuild something different from the bottom up. And I think we, we absolutely need to try to do that to the maximum extent we can, even although it will be opposed by governments because all political systems exist to concentrate wealth and control from the periphery in the hands of, of the center when you try to decentralize your short-circuiting that, that dynamic. So it, these things are resisted. So I would expect opposition to decentralization initiatives, but I think we have to do it anyway because for a while during a period of contraction, that will be the scale that is, that is most functional. And eventually, the larger uh, governance framework will probably wither and die for lack of finance, for lack of energy. The ability to project power at a distance is critically dependent on energy, for instance. So I think we're going to start small again and build up uh, a new governance structure from the bottom up when, when the deleveraging has run its course and trust can start to
0: rebuild. So, if it's a more decentralised model and from the bottom up, as you put it, what what does that look like? Is it more? You mentioned local councils, community Mm -hmm. groups. How does it work? And how do you get a sense of coherence across all those disparate uh, management structures?
1: It's exceptionally difficult. The human side of it is always the hardest thing, and. There's been a lot of focus on, on technologies as being part of the future. And I would say what we really need is to concentrate on people as the future, rebuilding relationships, because in our era of expansion, we've tended to disengage a lot. We, we've, we have much less patience for working with people than
0: we used to. Okay, now you mentioned also energy in there. Where do you see the energy future? Are you looking at alternative forms of energy and peak oil and so on?
1: That's basically where the analysis is coming from, that we're peaking in terms of global production from conventional energy sources, energy sources with a high energy profit ratio. So we're going to be moving into an era of much lower energy profit ratio energy sources. Now, if your energy profit ratio falls by a factor of 10, your gross production would have to rise by a factor of 10 just to provide the same amount of energy to to run society's purposes as before. But gross production is flat to falling, And and the energy profit ratio is falling as well. So that implies a very, very significant energy squeeze over the next probably 20 to 30 years. I think financial crisis will buy us time for a while because when there's a big economic contraction, you simply don't burn through anywhere near as much of it as you would have otherwise have done if you'd kept uh, an economy just ticking over or even humming like it has been. But I think beyond the point where where we've been bought some time by financial crisis, we're going to be looking at enormous energy problems, particularly beginning with the liquid fuels crisis, because oil provides the liquid fuels and its conventional oil supplies that are going to be very, very short in, in the future. Now, I look at all these low energy profit ratio energy sources, so all the unconventional oil and gas, and and also renewables uh, in most cases, and say these are all extremely complex activities. Now, any given society will have a minimum energy profit ratio that you need in order to maintain a level of socioeconomic complexity.
0: Can I get you to define what you mean by energy profit ratio?
1: Well, so how much energy do you get out compared to how much you put in? So in the early days of the oil industry, if you invested a unit of energy in energy production, you could expect to get 100 units in return. Now maybe 15. And if you're looking at, say, uh, coal seam gas, uh, tight formation gas, things like that, maybe two to one if you're lucky. So the energy profit ratio is much lower. You have to put in a lot of energy in order to produce energy in this way because it's so complex, so capital intensive, so energy intensive to to frack and horizontally drill and deal with all the the wastewater and... It's, it's an incredibly complex set of activities that you simply require a lot of energy to be able to conduct. We look at these large gas fields that they, they're suggesting is going to make the US the next Saudi Arabia. In theory, there's a large field, but there, in fact, there are actually just a few sweet spots. But you don't know where they are until you've drilled everywhere, and all that drilling takes a huge amount of energy. And then, so does the 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 horizontal drilling and all the fracking. So, if you if you have something like that that requires horrendously complex activities to produce but you can't use that kind of energy profit ratio to maintain enough complexity, then this will not be an energy source ever for any society. We also won't be doing big renewables because renewables, the way that most people are currently proposing doing them on a very large scale, require concrete and rebar and rare earth metals and a whole range of activities that involve non-renewable resources on a very large scale in very complex ways, build transmission lines, build huge storage components for energy. And that sort of thing won't work either. So that will not be an energy source for the future. We won't be able to build it and even what we have built we probably wouldn't be able to maintain on low energy profit ratio energy sources. So I think we need to learn quite a lot of lessons from that and when we move to renewables as we inevitably will then we should do it in a way that maximizes the energy profit ratio do it small do it local do it adjacent to demand minimize the infrastructure requirement so that you're you're doing it in a way that maximizes the amount of energy you're putting into useful purposes rather than having to invest all that embodied energy in the infrastructure
0: well given that list of requirements you just gave me i would guess that you are not in favor then of nuclear power am I putting words into your mouth?
1: I am most definitely not in favor of nuclear power. And this was uh, my academic field for quite a while. So I've put a lot of effort into looking at what constitutes nuclear safety and nuclear risk assessment and design basis accidents and a whole range of, of factors. Now... If you're going to build nuclear reactors, you have to have a big surplus of money and energy a good 10 years before you need a return on either one. You also have to have a nice big surplus of money and energy several decades after you produce either one. So what are the odds that that's going to happen in a very energy and money constrained scenario? So I don't think we'll build any more. I don't think we can even maintain them or replace the ones that we have. There are some 440 nuclear reactors worldwide. I worry Quite frankly, if we're leaving our grandchildren any of the resources they will need to decommission a nuclear reactor. So will they have the money, the energy, or even the knowledge to do that? I'm not convinced that they will, which means we could see a lot more nuclear accidents
0: what's the energy profit on nuclear Mm -hmm. fuel? Is it sufficiently high to cover this? But I think you're saying it's not.
1: It's not. If you look over the entire lifespan and estimates vary so I haven't got a specific number. It will vary with a a lot of different factors. But if you look over the whole life cycle everything from mining uranium to constructing the reactor and all the safety systems all the way through to decommissioning, the energy profit ratio is not going to be good for, for that. And if you add accidents even one or two you blow it right out of the water because of the amount of of effort that goes into containing even one serious accident it it really blows the energy profit ratio for the whole industry
0: so what will happen with these old reactors do you think we will just mothball them and and kind of shut the doors and leave them more or less Mm -hmm. as they are without decommissioning them properly
1: the problem is they require active management If you can't circulate coolant, in other words, if you're not continually putting energy in to circulate coolant, then even spent fuel, which has a lot of residual heat, can still melt down. This waste has to be actively managed for longer than any human society has yet managed to exist, which is a a very inconvenient truth, I think, from the point of view of of nuclear power. Nobody's got a solution for nuclear waste. This is going to be hazardous for centuries And we aren't going to be able to manage it. In fact, station blackout is the biggest risk. Uh, So the inability to circulate coolant, whether in a reactor core or in a spent fuel pool. And this was at, at the heart of both Chernobyl and Fukushima. So different causes, but at the heart of it was the fact that you couldn't circulate coolant. So Chernobyl-type reactors explode because they have a positive void coefficient. They go into a positive feedback loop, and they blow up and turn into a nuclear volcano when the moderator also catches fire. Fukushima-type reactors melt down, and then the risk is that the molten corium will end up in the groundwater and blow nuclear fuel all, all over the place. So that there are significant accident scenarios, and if I look at the the risk assessments for reactors like those and the kinds of things that happened, those kinds of accidents were meant to be perhaps one in a hundred million years of reactor operation. So they were clearly underestimating the risk. In other words, the design basis accident was nowhere near a comprehensive enough scenario. So at Fukushima, the design basis accident included an earthquake of seven point four, and they got a nine. Nines were perfectly. Predictable for that particular fault line, so they underdesigned it for the circumstances.
0: Have you looked at uh, so-called fourth-generation reactors and uh, thorium reactors? Is, is the story different with those? Well, the problem
1: is we don't have any thorium reactors, and because you would still need a large surplus of money and energy up front in order to build them, we're really not going to be able to move into that scenario. Now, if we had decided to go with thorium initially and had gone, you know, built that instead of building the uranium reactors that also produced all the nuclear weapons material, it would have been a better decision. But because we didn't, now we really don't have the capacity to do that. Even although they're smaller, modular systems, and they do have passive safety features, they would be a significant improvement. But nevertheless, we aren't going to have the the surplus of money and energy that would, we would need to engineer that kind of change. And one point I wanted to make on on the energy return on energy invested for, for nuclear power in general is that number is going to critically depend on the amount of high-grade uranium ore. The lower the grade uranium, more, you have to use, the lower the energy profit ratio is going to be. We are definitely depleting high-grade uranium ore very, very rapidly. I'd be surprised if we had more than about 15 years' worth of really high-grade uranium ore. So... And then beyond that, well, you could reprocess. You could, in theory, design other reactors to use reprocessed waste. But they've tried that. The ones in Japan and France have already been closed down. There's one still left in, in Russia. Britain tried reprocessing. It was a complete, in, incredibly expensive disaster. That, so, you know, it didn't work. It cost a billion dollars to put this plant together. It never really achieved anything other than to generate masses of contamination. So we don't have fast breeder reactors. They have huge safety issues anyway. We haven't got them, so now we won't be able to build them. So I just don't see any kind of nuclear scenario that can, that can actually work. And my worry is that if we cannot maintain uh, power grids in their current form because they are one of the most complex manifestations of our complex society and are therefore very vulnerable in a lower energy scenario. If we can't maintain those, then we can't necessarily continue to circulate coolant. And you could see a lot more Chernobyls and Fukushimas in the future.
0: Hmm. Well, we're, we're ticking the technologies off our uh, acceptable list. What about things like wind and solar and wave and geothermal? Can we go through some of those?
1: Well, essentially, what we need to do is we can do those, but we have to do them in a small and simple way. So the way we're doing them now with all the huge infrastructure requirement is what doesn't work because that could easily be pushing the energy profit ratio below one. So you could end up putting more energy in than you're actually getting out at the other end. So I think if we do it small and simple, we can do it. I would also like to see us look at whether we really need to produce electricity Some functions actually require that form of energy. Some functions don't. Sometimes thermal energy is enough. Sometimes motive power is enough. These can be achieved much more simply in a much more low-tech way. So I think we should be looking at how we harness uh, renewable resources like, like wind and sun, and harness them in the simplest way we possibly can with the minimum amount of infrastructure, because that will be something we can do for a lot longer than building big green stuff. Because I think big green stuff is actually nothing more than an extension of the fossil fuel economy because it has a huge dependence not only on fossil fuels, but on affordable fossil fuels. So if you take out the conventional energy supplies with the high energy profit ratio, you can't do any of those things. You can't build transmission lines. You can't build solar cells. You can't build enormous wind turbines. You can't build energy storage systems. So the way we currently define renewable energy is actually not renewable at all there's so many non-renewable dependencies built into it. So I think we we really need to have a complete rethink as to how we do renewable energy. And of course, we can live off renewable energy alone. We always did until the Industrial Revolution. But the key point is it didn't look like this society. You can't maintain this society or anything remotely like it on a renewable energy budget, on an energy income. We have what we have because we had an energy inheritance. But we've mostly used the amount of that that we can use to sustain our current society as we move into the downslope of hubbard's curve and the amount of energy we have is is drastically less we are going to simplify our society um, enormously and we're probably looking at a fall in in uh, the the energy surplus available to run society's functions of of the order of 90 percent over perhaps 30 years that's that's a big root and branch change in the way society functions
0: where do you see we're headed with food system? Is the world going to be able to feed itself?
1: No, unfortunately not, because, again, so much of that depends on fossil fuels. Forty percent of the nitrogen in the food supply comes from the artificial nit- fixation of nitrogen through fossil fuels. And this is all that's maintaining soil fertility in a lot of places, because modern agriculture strip mines soil fertility... If you then can't fertilize, because we're, we're farming subsoil in a lot of places, and the only reason it works is we're we're putting a lot of fertilizer into the system. If we lose the ability to put the fertilizer into that, then the yields are going to fall very substantially. At the same time, our ability to invest energy in agriculture in other ways, the use of all kinds of equipment for you know the machinery, the distribution networks, the supply chains, the energy for all of that will be compromised as well. So. I think we're going to have very large problems in some part of the world with, with food production. And it will be unevenly spread. Some places are much better off than others in this regard. It depends uh, how the population compares to the carrying capacity. Depends what the agricultural practices have been. Depends on the skills that the population still has. So there, there are an awful lot of factors that determine how that would play out in different places. But if you look at the agricultural system, it's the least energy-efficient form of agriculture in the history of the world by an enormous margin. It's 10 units in for every one unit we get out. You know, if we were lions and we were trying to catch cheetahs, but it took us 10 units of energy... Every time to get one, we would be extinct in no time at all. So the only reason we can do that is because we have fossil fuels. We have high energy profit ratio energy sources. So I think we need to start picking up ideas like permaculture really, really quickly. Because this is all about shepherding uh, the recovery of soil fertility. It's about building soil organic matter, maintaining fertility without the need for for artificial fertilizers and things without the need for all those energy inputs. And particularly in Australia, I think it's going to be critical because there's not a lot of soil here. There's not much soil fertility. And modern agriculture damages what there is. And this is also a very arid country. Permaculture is is offering ways to preserve the water in the landscape in ways that allow it to to hydrate the landscape
0: okay, so what are the, what are the main principles of permaculture and why is it fundamentally different
1: well it's about controlling throughputs of resources controlling the way that resources flow through a system particularly water which is critical in in australia because it's it's so arid so you would be looking at digging swales along contour lines so that you're you're holding the water back so it doesn't just run off you're holding the water in the landscape for as long as you possibly can to allow it to truly hydrate the soil because otherwise it all runs off and your soil fertility goes with It in in erosion, so it really limits erosion. You're maintaining the nutrients. You're building organic matter because you would have a swale, and behind that you would have, you would have a whole amount of organic matter of all kinds that you would then plant in to hold it all together. So you're you're maintaining the resources in the system, you're reducing resource throughput, which is exactly the way natural ecosystems operate.
0: Is this something more than just organic farming? Oh, very
1: much so, yes.
0: So what's the main difference with organic farming?
1: Well, we used to do organic farming in, say, the Middle East, in the Neolithic Revolution. It was the Fertile Crescent. What is it now? It's a desert. It wasn't industrial farming that did that. It was organic farming because that's all they had. All farming where you monocrop, you get rid of the ecosystem and then you put in a huge monocrop and you turn it into human biomass as quickly as you possibly can. It's inherently expansionist. It it inherently damages carrying capacity. So you can do it for a certain amount of time until you run out of soil fertility. Then you have desert and it's going to take you a long time to recover from that. So the Middle East hasn't recovered from that. That's, that's a major, major problem. So it's not enough, we, we need to get away from, from the idea of any kind of monocropping, whether it's industrial or organic, whether it's done with, with tractors or, or with hoes and, and human beings. If what we're doing is destroying an ecosystem to put in a monocrop to turn into massive amounts of human biomass very quickly, that is an unstable system. Permaculture is about trying to maintain the system in some kind of, of equilibrium in a way that actually functions and it's not inherently expansionist and it doesn't damage the carrying capacity.
0: Well looking out the window I can see a mob of kangaroos in mm-hmm. fact. Do you have an attitude towards eating meat and in particular eating native meat such as the, our hoppy friends outside?
1: I have done exactly that. <laughs> so I, th- I think actually animals are a critical part of ecosystems and it's misguided to say that we shouldn't be eating meat. I mean we should certainly not be eating the kind of meat Meat that comes from uh, cattle produced where you just get rid of a whole ecosystem and turn it into an industrial meat production facility—that sort of thing is absolutely grotesque and has has no place in a low-energy future whatsoever, and you know, no place in a future where there will be environmental limits, as there most certainly will be. But animals don't have to be raised in horrible conditions and in an industrial intensive kind of way they're very much part of natural ecosystems so pigs will be a rototiller chickens will scratch up the ground and and fertilize things animals will spread organic matter they provide ecosystem services And they may be eating things that human beings wouldn't eat to save their lives and turning it into something that is useful human sources for food. So my chickens, for instance, on on my farm in Canada, follow my sheep around and eat grubs out of sheep poop. I wasn't going to compete with those chickens for that food source. So they're turning that into eggs, which I do eat. And I look after my chickens very nicely. And this is not an industrial sort of production whatsoever. It's very low energy input. And they're very much part of an integrated system. And if we do it that way, there's no reason that that we shouldn't eat meat. I think eating eating things like kangaroos is, is not a problem. There are a lot of them. And they don't have to be intensively produced. I would get rid of a lot of the beef and the things that are intensive and industrial but then go with the the native animals Are 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 we
0: going to get the um, the industrial scale productivity that Mm. farmers are looking for, that the supermarket Mm. chains want to get out of our farms for for producing Mm. meat?
1: Not at all. But then we won't have supermarket chains either in a simpler society. So we'd be looking at the kind of system that we would have had a long time ago. Think about before there were supermarkets. Where was the food? Well, it was in everybody's gardens. It was done on a small scale. There were no large centralized facilities. Those are a product of of an industrial system run on high energy profit ratio energy sources. Those are not going to be something that will be there in the future. There'll be shops, but not on a scale of supermarkets, and nobody will have pricing power in the same way. So I think we're going to actually see a lot more uh, control in the hands of the people who are actually growing the food, thankfully.
0: Well, what's going to make that happen? You, you, you painted a fairly big picture of, of some large forces that uh, are lined up that are going to make our future very difficult, how are we going to make this transition and how's the individual going to respond to this? Because you could say, you know, I'm just little me and I'm looking at the, the running out of, of, you know, of cheap oil. I'm seeing a burgeoning world population. I'm seeing governments control and large corporations and so on of the things you've described. I'm just a little powerless little person. What am I going to do?
1: We're powerless in comparison to the large scale governance structures that have emerged during our era of, cons- of expansion. So scaling things up is disempowering. People feel that there's nothing they can do that can make any difference, and, and quite often they're right. But when effective organizational scale is coming down, this can be empowering because, once again, you're working at a human scale. So I think what we need to do is download responsibility for changing, changing the way we do things before we are forced to So the way I would put this is to say, we're going over a cliff whether we like it or not. That part is not optional because we're going to see a credit bubble burst. We're going to have a lot less energy in the future. So the cliff is there. There's nothing we can do about that. We can stand on the edge and wait for someone to shove us off, or we can put on a parachute and jump. And even although base jumping is not without its risks, it's definitely preferable to simply being shoved off a cliff. So I think we need to download responsibility. We need to reclaim responsibility for for our own future at, and at a local scale. And this will be empowering. And this is the route to really bring back civic engagement. So it's about building community and relationships of trust from the bottom up. That is the foundation of society at all times. So if we can do that... Preferably, while the larger scale systems still exist, then we have time to build parallel, smaller scale systems to serve the basic core functions. And that's what I think we need to be focusing on.
0: Okay, so Nicole, you've been through, I would guess, uh, quite a journey to get to this point. Did you find this uh, personally challenging? Do you go through a feeling of depression when you found that, or you you saw that this is the cliff, as you put it, that we're headed towards? How, How did it affect you?
1: Well, I have three children, so yes, I'm very worried about the future that they're going to be inheriting. And I've done my best to try and make sure that they develop practical skills, that they stayed out of debt so they're not vulnerable to the worst of financial crisis, and that they have a reasonably close connection with where the essentials of their own existence come from, food and water and and energy. So I've done what I could to try and position them as well as I could for a lower money, lower energy future. But yes, they're going to be moving into a future that's very much more difficult, and that does worry me enormously. But I don't wallow in depression because... A tremendous sense of purpose is the best antidote to depression, a sense of trying to genuinely get out there and achieve something. And what I'm trying to achieve is to communicate an appropriate sense of urgency as to the need to change the way that we do things. So human beings tend to only have two operating modes. There's complacency and then there's panic. And I'm trying to create an informed sense of urgency. Because we are the only generation, the only time this has happened in these cycles of expansion and contraction, the only time we've been able to see it coming. So before that, it always just hit them. and They had no idea it was coming, and then they just had to deal with the fallout. This time, we can see it coming. So we can take action in advance, and if we do, we can mitigate the impact of a contraction. And one of the ways to do that is by not putting what energy we have left into ridiculous boondoggles that are not going to help. So in being informed, we have the opportunity to leverage the effects of what what energy we have left to be able to move to a lower-tech, lower-energy future.
0: Does this leave you with a sense of optimism?
1: Um, it's a little bit more complex than that. I'm very optimistic as to what people are capable of. I'm not so optimistic that they'll actually achieve their capabilities because it is very difficult to build the human relationships that you really need so I think in some places people will do it and in places where they do it well the difference will be absolutely remarkable compared to places where they don't but I don't have any illusions that everybody is going to get out there and make the necessary changes. But I'm optimistic in the sense that I think there's a tremendous amount of positive change that is possible. And I'm trying to uh, get people excited about making that kind of change to the extent that it is possible to do so.
0: Thank you. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share before we finish off?
1: Well, I'm very happy to be in Australia and I find people listen here more so than they do in a lot of other places. And I think that comes from living in a more brittle environment where there are fires and floods and droughts and all kinds of things that simply happen that you have to deal with. So I think people have a sense of limits here that they don't have in, say, Canada, where, where I live. And, you know, there haven't been any limits in Canada in living memory, so people don't really know what they are. But here, people do have a sense of limits, so they do tend to, when you tell them there are other limits out there, they tend to really absorb that. And I, I really appreciate that. So I find it's it's a very useful place to be trying to make a difference.
0: Well, Nicole Foss, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you today, and I hope that Australia can be a beacon for the rest of the world and how we can face our future.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me, and I'm very much hoping that you know people in Canada will take these things on board as well. Some of them do, of course, but it's just not enough of them. So I hope we can move in the direction the Australians are in.
0: Thank you.